0: A minister executed for witchcraft, a notoriously charming serial killer, a squad of swashbuckling Los Angeles dentists, and the science, if it's a science at all, that could actually send you to prison for life. Throw in the midnight ride of Paul Revere, and you have this episode of True Weird Stuff. Bite me. Bite me. And they got a small beam of light against the mirror. True. Weird. Stuff. Uh, you would expect the teeth on the left side to be higher in the arch. Or you'd expect the individual to have bitten harder or bitten, bitten at an angle in which they were applying more pressure to the left side of the, of the bite than they did to the right. And in this particular case, uh, we can say we can eliminate the theory of the high tooth because you have two bite rings. You have A and B. And when you go up to ring B, you can tell from ring B that the teeth are not higher in the arch. That was Dennis, Dr. Richard Souveron. He's kind of like the granddaddy of forensic odontology, testifying in July 1979 at the trial of serial killer Ted Bundy. The jury returned a guilty verdict in this case. The brutal sexual assault of four young women in a sorority house at Florida State University. Two of the women died. Bundy's violence was sadistic in the extreme. And I will spare you almost every grim detail because it's just so horrifying. But Ted Bundy, whether in a moment of calculated and gleeful psychopathy or in the grip of his own savage wilding, Ted Bundy left a mark, a bite mark to be exact, on the buttock of one victim. And it was that bite mark that drove Dr. Souveron's controversial testimony, that bite mark that led a jury to convict a killer. Maybe the most famous bite mark in all of criminology, or possibly the most infamous bite mark to ever condemn a defendant, but it wasn't the first. And no matter what you've seen on TV or in any movie, the real truth is bite mark evidence just might be one of the sketchiest, most unreliable, junky kinds of science to ever swagger into a courtroom. Prosecutors have nailed many a conviction based on the toothy impressions left by a perpetrator on the flesh of their victim. But is that even legit, really? And how in the world did this kind of evidence manage to sneak into the party? It all began, like so many things in human history do, with ignorance, paranoia, and superstition. Plus the usual gut-twisting suspicion and fear of women that's like, what, hardwired into our little monkey brains? And as a side note, let me just say that if women had even a fraction of the power, some y'all so damn scared about, there'd be a whole lot more toads and newts and whatnots hopping around where our exes used to be. Not to mention the bonanza of functional pockets that will be automatically installed in our clothing. Seriously, you'll need to think about that stuff a little harder. Anyway, ignorance, paranoia, superstition. You know where that train loves to stop. Salem, Massachusetts. Now, America wasn't yet America back in the 15th century, and Massachusetts back then was called the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It was to hear sometime in the late 1650s that a young boy named George Burroughs emigrated with his mother. They maybe came from Suffolk, England. Some people say they came from Virginia. The historical records from that era are sometimes as vague and contradictory as a kid explaining why it is they wait until eight o'clock on a Sunday night to tell you that they need a medieval castle built from sugar cubes for social studies tomorrow. So yeah, we don't have great records of George Burroughs' early life. But we do know that he graduated from Harvard in 1670. Four years later, he was a married man and the minister of a church in what is now Portland, Maine. Today, Portland, Maine is on U.S. News and World Report's top 10 places to live in the U.S. Reverend Burroughs got there a bit too early for the hipster accolades. And just in time to see the town destroyed by the Wabanaki Confederacy. Girl, did you just say Portland, Maine got destroyed by the what? what is now portland maine back then was called falmouth and it was completely destroyed by the wabanaki confederacy what's that well that's a whole story all by itself but the cliff notes are basically this back then four eastern algonquin nations along with a multitude of other tribal bands formed this political alliance because honestly from the viking raiders to the english settlers the aboriginal peoples of north america were all like hello we already live here this continent was never empty like you guys believed and even though you won't invent the concept of manifest destiny for another couple hundred years you're awfully arrogant and rude and entitled about our ancestral homelands and we're very sorry to inform you that this means war and sure enough a couple hundred settlers died in that particular bloody skirmish but not the Reverend Burroughs, he managed to escape with a small group of refugees, all of whom ultimately wound up in the settlement of Salisbury, Massachusetts, where once again, Burroughs found work as a minister. Technically, this should be the spot where we lose the Reverend Burroughs to the mists of time, but Destiny was in a bitchy kind of mood that day and had other plans. Enter Salem Village Church. Charming little fixer-upper in desperate need of a parson, now, what George Burroughs didn't know was that Salem Village was a town seething with conflict, resentment, and feuding neighbors. He had no idea that his predecessor had never been paid, and that his new congregation was basically a pack of ye old apples. So, in 1680, George Burroughs becomes the minister of Salem Village. That's a place that we now call Danvers, Massachusetts. And as career moves go, this one would prove to be regrettable. Partly because it was a miserable posting where once again, the villagers failed to scrape together the meager funds to even pay their preacher. And mostly because just one year into the job, his wife Hannah died. Grief stricken and so penniless, he was forced to borrow the money he needed to give his late wife the most basic funeral. And after that, Burroughs resigned his ministry. And left Salem Village in the rear view. But Salem Village was not done with the Reverend Burroughs. You know how, when somebody does you wrong, like maybe they hire you for a job and then flatly refuse to pay you? You know how that can stick in your craw to the point where you're like, I gotta deal with this? 15th century clergyman or not, the Reverend George Burroughs was just like any of us. The more he thought about it, the more it pissed him off that he'd been stiffed by a pack of spiteful villagers. So back he goes to Salem, mind on his money, his money on his mind, to get what was rightfully his. And just how nasty were the folk of Salem Village? Well, the very friend who'd loaned Burroughs the money for his wife's funeral then had Burroughs arrested for non-payment of the funeral bills. He only narrowly escaped prison for this debt because back then we did lock people up for owed money. Because six decent men in town intervened. And Burroughs once more was like, I am so out of here. He left Salem and he tried to get on with his life. But it was a life marked by grief yet again when his second wife died. I have to say here that wifing was very dangerous business back then, as it is now. Although our ancestors did not have Dateline to serve as their early warning system. And aren't we so much better off today? Thank you, Keith Morrison and NBC. Curious. Wonder who that could be. I don't know what was in the water of Salem Village, but those people could by God hold a grudge. Remember the friend that lent Reverend Burroughs the money for his wife's funeral? In 1692, that guy accused Burroughs of witchcraft and it was the usual insane litany of charges, like, oh, there's an affliction of toads at one of his homes. His spirit could allegedly travel in the night to menace young ladies in their bedchambers. He possessed superhuman strength. There were never any eyewitnesses to any of this, of course. The Reverend Cotton Mather, that bewigged and witchcraft-obsessed paragon of, I think he doth protest too much, because WTF with all the witchcraft, crazy Cotton, wrote in his book, The Wonders of the Invisible World, quote, GB was accused by eight confessing witches as being the head actor at some of their hellish rendezvous. And he had the promise of being a king in Satan's kingdom, end quote. Okay, so first, when you're accusing a dude of witchcraft and of consorting with Satan, don't you think using just his initials is, I don't know, a little unprofessional? Second, remind me we need to do a whole episode on the Reverend Cotton Mather because trust me, it gets all kinds of weird up in that particular story. So listen... The Reverend George Burroughs was a pretty complicated man. He was said to be very, very private. Apparently, not all of his children were even baptized. He did not wear his religious convictions on his sleeves, and he wasn't much of a gladhander. And that was enough back then to get you tagged as a minion of Satan. Most of the evidence against Burroughs was hearsay. In fact, many of his so-called victims actually used the same verbiage in their testimonies word for word you would never get away with that today. At least I don't think you would, but there was one small bit of physical evidence that was used to convict burrows of witchcraft and send them to the gallows. Can you guess what it was? A bite mark. And how in those decidedly unscientific times, did a court analyze this defendant's dentition? Simple. First, they all took a good long look at a mark on the victim's arm. Next, they headed over and very thoughtfully eyeballed George Burroughs' teeth. Close enough! Hang him for being a witch! And this is how George Burroughs entered history as the only member of clergy ever convicted and executed for the crime of witchcraft in all of the Salem witch trials. And that bewitching bite mark? It was also the very first use of bite mark evidence in a criminal case In North America. It set a precedent for bite mark evidence that persists in courtrooms to this very day. But what if it's all just a load of crap? How many innocent people like the Reverend Burroughs have paid for that load of crap with their liberty or their very lives? There's a guy named M. Chris Fabricant. He's the director of strategic litigation for the Innocence Project. That's a nonprofit dedicated to overturning the wrongful convictions of innocent people. And in his book, Junk Science and the American Criminal Justice System, Fabricant comes hard for the legitimacy of bite mark evidence, comes for it like an avenging angel. Fabricant says in his book, quote, bite mark evidence represents everything that's wrong with forensic science today, end quote. He calls it grossly unreliable. And why? Well, let's start with human skin. It's a bad and really unreliable recording medium. There's so, so many factors. Age, elasticity, ethnicity, pigmentation, one person's tendency to bruise or not. And then, of course, the dynamic play of factors like force, how hard are you biting? Motion, how hard is the victim resisting? You could actually line up 50 people at random and bite every single one of them. And if you think that the marks will be consistent in all 50 cases, well, I have an ancient cursed raccoon paw to sell you. Also, human teeth are not even remotely unique in the way that, like, fingerprints are. We've all seen gangster movies. You've seen guys dip their fingers in acid in a desperate attempt to alter their fingerprints or shave off their fingertips with razors. All you need to do to alter your bite is go see an orthodontist. The Innocence Project estimates that there are at least 26 cases where bite marks were used to wrongfully convict. Now, that probably doesn't sound like a big number, right? But if it's you staring down decades behind bars or like the Reverend Burroughs facing swinging lifelessly at the end of a rope, that's 26 too many. And how we got from a dead preacher and the Salem witch trials to Ted Bundy in his book. Fabricant points the finger at a group of dentists in Los Angeles in the late 1970s, those halcyon days of quaaludes, polyester, and the Eagles. Welcome to the Hotel California. Fabricant says that this new field of forensic odontology was the invention of a group of dentists that the press at the time and pop culture portrayed as quote, Swashbuckling crime fighters, handsome, fit, body men's men. End quote. I um, actually like my dentist a lot, but pardon me while I swish and spit and try not to giggle at the image of my dentist buckling on his swash to go fight some crime. And I'm not saying that these swashbuckling cavity annihilators were dishonest or had a villain's agenda. They, like the villagers at Salem, were just people of their time. They didn't know what they didn't know. And if there's one thing that human beings are really, really skilled at, it's making a whole bunch of stuff up and then forcing it to be true, no matter what it costs us. So here we are. Now we've traveled all the way forward in time from a 15th century courtroom in the colonies to a 20th century courtroom in Florida to the 21st century where there are very probably innocent people imprisoned thanks to the same flimsy and frankly unscientific evidence that sent the Reverend George Burroughs to his death. Think about that the next time you hear somebody use a phrase like, take a bite out of crime. Now, before we wrap up, I did promise you a little bit of Paul Revere in this episode. And this is just one of those super cool historical fun facts that I swear to God, I do not understand why they don't teach this in schools. I think all of us would have loved history class so much more if they would have taught us stuff like this. Here we go. So you know that Paul Revere was a silversmith and a patriot and an inspiration for the Longfellow poem, Paul Revere's Ride. And that's all true. What you might not know is that in times of terrible strife and hardship, like a revolution, the market for silver tea sets and spoons and candlesticks goes way down. So to help make ends meet, Paul Revere had himself a little side hustle, dentistry. One of his patients was a gentleman named Dr. Joseph Warren. And Dr. Joseph Warren had some issues with his teeth like people did back in the day because we didn't have crest and nobody knew to floss, right? So Dr. Joseph Warren comes to Paul Revere and Paul Revere does a little bit of dentistry for Dr. Joseph Warren and they strike up a friendship. In fact, it was Dr. Warren who tipped Paul Revere off that the British were coming, which means it was Dr. Warren who probably inspired Paul Revere's famous midnight ride and then when dr joseph warren was killed at the battle of bunker hill british soldiers stripped him of his uniform and any means of identification and they chucked his body into a mass grave which happened a lot back then and still today honestly four times hell so Warren's brothers, they go to Paul Revere because they know that Paul Revere and Dr. Warren were friends. And they said, you know, we think he's been killed. We, we, we must find his body. We must give him a proper burial. So Paul Revere goes to the battlefield to help Warren's brothers scour, scour that bloody, awful place for the doctor's remains. And, of course, you know, the bodies have been stripped of all identification all clothing, watches, any way that you could tell, and they were bloody and shot up and badly decomposing. I mean, war is hell, you know, and this was a hellish time. It was Paul Revere who helped find the remains of Dr. Joseph Warren because as Paul Revere went from body to body to body, he opened each of the corpses' mouths. And when he found Dr. Warren's, Wire and walrus tusk fake tooth that he himself had placed in the doctor's mouth, they knew that they had found their man. And kids, this is why we floss. Because would you like to have a chunk of walrus tusk tied to your teeth with silver wire? I don't think so. I don't think so. So maybe the poem should go like this Listen, my children, and you shall hear of America's first identification of human remains by odontology. And the dentist was none other than Paul Revere. Next time on True Weird Stuff, we take a trip to the Emerald Isle where we discover that no matter how much you call your wife a changeling, that's no reason to get rid of her. Next time on True Weird Stuff. And we really appreciate it if you subscribe, rate, and review True Weird Stuff. Hit our website, TrueWeirdStuff.com, for show notes and photos and videos when we have it, and bonus content. Everything True Weird is waiting for you at TrueWeirdStuff.com. And follow True Weird Stuff on Instagram and Twitter. True Weird Stuff is a Now Media production. Our executive producer is Anthony Garcia. The show is written and hosted by me, Sherry Lynch, along with my deeply weird director, Max Sweeten. Our equally odd producer is Carrie Bowser. Additional production by the mysterious Stephen Call. Our digital witch and social media cult leader is Heather Furr. Original graphics by Kevin Nash. Original artworks by Olivia Axlin. True weird original music composed and performed by Jack Griffin and Zane Nash. Copyright 2023. Now media. All rights reserved. All wrongs remembered.